church. I told the 9 a.m. It's a beautiful, crisp fall morning. Makes you want to frolic in a corn maze with a pumpkin spice latte. Except, I realized after I said that, that is not true for me because I'm more of an apple cider. Thank you. So now that uh, I've offended 90% of the people in here, let's just jump into uh, preaching. Uh, (laughs) Welcome to week five of our series through the book of James that we are calling How Faith Works. And so far, we've, we've, we've gone through chapters one through two, and we've learned how to handle trials, how to use the Bible, how to treat people, and then last week, how to know if your faith is alive. Today, we're just going to continue that how-to theme by moving on to chapter three and talking about a super fun topic, how to tame the tongue. So let's just go ahead And jump into those verses right here on the front end. I'm going to read them to you. We're in James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And here's what James says to us. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, We guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So a couple years ago, my wife Tiffany and I uh, watched a Netflix show called A Series of Unfortunate Events. Um, The show is actually based off of a children's book series, came out in the late 90s, early 2000s. And normally, I am a read-the-books-they're-better-than-the-movies kind of guy. I've not read these books. I've got them on my shelf. Don't nerd shame me. But we've watched the show, and we enjoyed it. However, as we kept watching week after week, we just kept waiting for the story to resolve itself, you know, like for the bad things to be undone or made right, the main characters to live happily ever after. But, spoiler alert, that doesn't happen. We we were stunned that a show called A Series of Unfortunate Events literally was a series of one unfortunate event after another. And you're asking, why is he telling me this story? Number one, to vent, because it's bothering me. Number two, because that's exactly how this passage in James feels. The whole passage just moves from one piece of bad news to the next, and then it ends with no apparent resolution. Just, just think through what I just read to you. James begins by telling us that not many people should become teachers because you'll be judged stricter. Then he moves on to describe our tongues as a fire set on fire by hell, sets on fire our lives, sets on fire entire forests. And then he ends 
by talking about how we use the same tongue to bless God and curse people, and that ought not to be. And then that's it. If you move on to verse 13, changes topics completely. So how can we tame the tongue? After reading these verses, on a surface level, the answer seems to be pretty clear. James actually just comes right out and says it in verse 8. He says, no human being can tame the tongue. So worship team, if you just want to come on back up, that's it. That's all. I want you to let your tongues run wild and free. Isn't that what you wanted to hear? We think that's what we want to hear, right? We, we would love for the Bible to leave us with such an easy answer, but it's really not. It's really not what we want or need to hear. We should all want to know for our sake and for the sake of everybody around us how to tame our tongue. So even though these 12 verses on the surface may seem hopeless, they really, of course, are not, or else I wouldn't be up here. If we, if we dig in a little bit deeper to what James is saying, we'll find that, yes, the tongue is a force for evil in this world so often, and yes, it actually is impossible to tame, but we believe in a God who does the impossible. So I just want to take the next few minutes. We're going to just walk through these 12 verses. We're going to look at three big ideas or themes as we go. The first thing we're going to talk about is the benefit of taming the tongue. Secondly, we'll look at the harsh reality of the untamed tongue, and then we'll end by talking about hope for taming the tongue. But before we do any of that, I always like to just define our terms so we're all on the same page. What do I mean? What does James mean when he talks about taming the tongue? And thankfully, he defines it for us right here at the beginning of the passage in verse 2. Here's what he says, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says... He's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So very simply put, taming the tongue just simply means to not stumble in what we say. And when James uses that phrase, that word stumble, he just simply means sin. Back in chapter 2, verse 10, he uses the same Greek word to talk about disobeying one of God's commands. So to stumble is to sin. And, and then the phrase, what we say, is actually just one single Greek word that, that a lot of you probably know. It's logos or lagos for pumpkin spice latte drinkers pretentious people. I'm kidding. I'm joking. I really don't know how to pronounce one or the other. But, but it, here's why I say that. I'm not just throwing out like fun knowledge. That word covers not only verbal words that come out of our mouths, but also words that are used through writing. And that seems like an elementary thing to say, but it's important because in this digital age we live in, we often convince ourselves that things we would never say out loud somehow become okay if we type them onto a screen, right? So we're talking about all kinds of words here. So what does it mean to tame the tongue? Simply put, to not sin in the words that we use, whether verbal or written. If I were to spin that positively, it would be to use our words in a way that pleases and honors God. And of course, we're going to flesh that out as we go through the rest of this passage. So let's just, let's go ahead though and answer that first question, the question that's always at the forefront of our minds, which is, why does this matter? How does taming the tongue benefit me? And that's our first big idea today, the, the benefit of taming the tongue. And you might think that that just seems like an unnecessary point. Like, based on what I just told you, it seems pretty obvious that the benefit of taming the tongue is that it makes God happy. And if that makes God happy, it's going to make us happy. And that's true, of course. But James actually brings to the surface another benefit uh, that maybe you've never considered before. I want you to listen again to verses 2 through 4. Here's what he says. For we all stumble in many ways... And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle or control his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. 
Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So I think those two metaphors James is using in verses 3 and 4 are pretty obvious. He's making his point pretty clearly. If, if we can learn to tame our tongue, we will also be able to control all the other impulses of our body. Just like if you can control the mouth of a horse with a bit, you can move his body. Or if you can control the rudder of a ship, you can move the whole vessel. Tongue control leads to self-control. But how does that actually work? So let's look a little closer at verse 2, and he's going to tell us how that actually works. He says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, listen to this next part, he is a perfect or complete or mature man, able also to bridle his whole body. So, So James is not saying that the person who controls their tongue then has some magical power to use his words to control the rest of his body. What he's saying is that in the process of learning to not stumble in what we say, we will reach maturity as a whole person. Think about the select few men and women who have scaled Mount Everest. Mount Everest, we all know, we learned this in elementary school, highest mountain in the world, hardest one to conquer. So when you hear that someone has scaled Mount Everest, you automatically know that person is no amateur climber right? They, they didn't start with Mount Everest. In the process of training themselves and preparing themselves to conquer the highest and the hardest mountain, they went out and conquered all kinds of smaller ones. So, the conquering of Mount Everest is the marker that they've conquered many mountains. Taming our tongue is the Mount Everest of self-control. If, if we set our sights to conquer it, then that journey it'll take us on will work all kinds of changes in our minds and our hearts, helping us to conquer all kinds of other impulses of our bodies that inherently aren't evil, but become so when they're not controlled. Think about your temper, your attitude, physical desires for pleasure like sex, food, drink, what we look at with our eyes, what we hear with our ears, and we could keep going and going. Tongue control will mature us to have control over all those things. And that means that that when you meet someone who is really good at controlling their tongue, then nine times out of ten, you can almost guarantee that they're also really good at self-control in most other areas of their life because a tamed tongue is the marker of maturity. Now, if that kind of mature tongue control sounds rare, that's because it is. James himself actually tells us as much right here in chapter 3. I don't know if you remember the very first verse, the way he started it. You might have thought, that's random. It doesn't fit at all, but it does. There's a connection here. So let me read it to you again. Verse 1, he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So let me show you how that connects. Teachers, maybe more than any other calling or profession, use their tongues, use their words to influence other people. And because of that greater influence, there's greater responsibility. And with greater responsibility comes greater accountability, what James calls stricter judgment. So teachers really, really need to learn how to use their words, how to not stumble in what they say, how to tame their tongues and reach maturity. But the fact that James says not many of you should do this It's pretty clear evidence that not many of us actually reach that level of maturity. Not many of us learn to tame our tongues. What is much more common is the untamed tongue. And that really brings us to our second big idea today, which I'm calling the harsh 
reality of an untamed tongue. And if, if the way I titled that didn't let you know that this is going to be uncomfortable, then let me just say it. This is going to make you uncomfortable, which seems to be a recurring theme in the book of James. I told the 9 a.m., and I probably shouldn't tell you this either because this is not normally what preachers say. The book of James is my least favorite book of the Bible because it's always making me feel bad, which, you know what? No pain, no gain. Isn't that the way it goes? We've got to go here if we're going to get to the hope. So just, just hang in there with me. We're going to be uncomfortable for a few minutes, but I promise we're going to get to hope as well. So remember, Verses 3 and 4, James illustrates the power of taming the tongue by using the picture of a bit in a horse's mouth or, or the rudder of a great ship. And the picture there is a positive one of how something so small can, can produce so much good. But that's only if it's tamed. Now in verse 5, James turns his attention to the power of the untamed tongue. And the picture he paints here is obviously much more negative. So let's just start with verse 5 and we'll, and we'll walk through it here. Here's what he says in verse 5. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Now the tongue isn't described as doing productive things like bringing control, bringing direction. Now it's burning down a forest. It's destroying everything around it. And that is the defining characteristic of the untamed tongue, destruction. The question is, why? Why is that how the untamed tongue works? And verse 6 gives us what I would consider a terrifying answer. Here's what he says. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. Now, stop and think about that for just a second. The the very real evil powers of this world, supernatural beings whom the Bible calls Satan and his demons, they accomplish so much of their wicked agenda through the agency of the human tongue. That's what, that's what James is saying here. And what is their agenda? What, are, what is the agenda of hell? You see it right here in verse 6. The tongue is a world of unrighteousness. The agenda of hell and all the demonic and evil powers of the world is to spread unrighteousness, to spread sin, which always spreads destruction. Destruction of everyone around us. That's that metaphorical forest in verse 5. But also you see here in verse 6, the destruction of our own lives. It stains our whole body. It destroys the course of our entire lives. Unrighteous words have ravaged more people's lives than maybe any other sinful action in history. I'm going to say that one more time. Unrighteous words have ravaged more people's lives than maybe any other sinful action in history. And in case you think I'm making an overstatement, I want you to consider an example. And admittedly, it's an extreme example. And I'm going extreme for a reason. So hang in there and don't roll your eyes. You you probably know where I'm about to go with this because this is where everybody goes when they're looking for extreme examples. But I've got a point I'm making. How did Adolf Hitler deceive so many people and stir them up to commit such atrocities? We're not talking about thousands of years ago, right? We're talking about recently. How did he do that? And the scary answer is that he did it primarily through his words. Of course, there were all kinds of historical reasons why people were ready to listen to his words, and and we're not letting people off the hook for acting upon and believing those words, but it was Hitler's words, his speeches, his writings, his propaganda 
that were the spark that lit all those dry branches. And look at what evil destruction came from that. We're talking about the genocide of millions of innocent people in the Holocaust. We're talking about a world war that devastated people's homes, ruined nations' economies, stole the lives of millions of soldiers and civilians. And then, to cap it all off, those unrighteous words and their consequences ultimately destroyed the person with the tongue itself when Hitler committed suicide. It's hard. I don't understand how you can back away and look at that and truly believe that evil is just a made-up relic of religion. What James is telling us is that the halls of hell cheered at the words of Hitler because they were the ones who set his tongue on fire. Now, of course, I don't think anybody in this room is the next Hitler, but here's the point. Every time we stumble with our tongue in what we consider a less threatening, more average kind of way, we too are playing with the same destructive hellfire. Now, you would ask, well, what does that look like? What is this more average way of using the untamed tongue? And James actually tells us, if we skip forward to verses 9 through 10, he's going to just do away with the metaphors and just cut right to the point. He gives us an example of what this looks like in our everyday normal lives. Verses 9 through 10, here's what he says. He says, with it, with the tongue... We bless our Lord and Father, and with it, the tongue, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. So let's, let's take a second and figure out what he means here by bless and curse, because that seems to be at the core of what he's saying here. So if you're looking at the Greek words behind them, literally bless means to speak well of. Greek, uh, the, the word curse in Greek literally means to wish evil upon. I think we all get those definitions, but there's actually a deeper meaning here. When James uses those two words, bless and curse, and then he also uses this phrase that we're made in the likeness of God, he's trying to draw our attention back to the story of the creation and the fall of man in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Now, I'm aware that most of you probably know that story, but I just want to recap it real quick so that you can see the connections to what James is saying here. So, so back in Genesis 1 through 3, we're told that God made the first humans in his likeness, just like James says here. And then he blesses them and tells them to multiply. But the evil serpent in chapter 3 comes along, who is Satan, we know. He uses his words to tempt these humans to disobey God. And because of those evil words, these humans are cursed. They're kicked out of the land. They're given over to hardship and death. Now think about that. In that story in Genesis, blessing is associated with creation and life. And curse is associated with destruction and death. And so come back to James now. For us, to bless is to use our words, even hard words, with the purpose of giving life, life for other people's well-being, their growth, their success. And then to curse would be to use our words with the purpose of giving death, death to other people's reputations, value, confidence, relationships, and so much more. There's a scene early in The Lord of the Rings, books and movies. After the Bible, The Lord of the Rings has all the answers for life. If you don't know that, now you know that. So there's a scene early in those books where Frodo, so maybe it doesn't have the answers to how you should name your kids. Don't name him Frodo. There's a character named Frodo, and he's really upset with this other character, Gollum. And he's so upset that he says this. He says, it's a pity that my uncle didn't kill him when he had 
the chance. That's a curse, right? He's cursed. He's wishing evil upon him, right? And listen, Gollum's a bad dude. He's done a lot of bad things. But I want you to hear how the wise wizard Gandalf responds to Frodo's curse. He says, many that live deserve death. Some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. That's the difference between blessing and cursing, to recognize our own incomplete knowledge, our own immaturity, and not be so eager to deal out death in judgment. So now we know what James is trying to say with these blessing and cursing words. Back to verses 9 through 10. Speaking to Christians, James says that one of the common ways that our tongues burn with the fires of hell is when we use those tongues to bless God, to speak well of Him, to celebrate His life and His goodness. And then we also use those tongues, like the serpent, to curse, to wish evil upon our fellow humans, to tear them down, to humiliate them, mock them, dehumanize them, and pass our own judgment of death and condemnation on them. And James is not merely saying that it's bad for Christians to speak about other Christians that way. He's saying that it's wrong for Christians to speak this way about people made in the likeness of God. That's his phrase. It's wrong for us to speak that way about anyone made in the likeness of God. So let's just run down the list of who that might include. This is going to be fun. How about, let's just start easy, right? How about the guy or the girl who almost ran you off the road because they wanted to get in front of you even though there's plenty of room right behind you, right? You've probably got some choice words for them. Made in the likeness of God. How about your coworker or your classmate pushes you around, insults you? You'd probably like to give them a good tongue lashing. Made in the likeness of God. How about your spouse who can be so selfish, your child who can be so disrespectful, your in-laws that can be so judgmental, your neighbor who won't clean up the dog poop out of their yard? Right? You'd like to give them a piece of your mind. They're made in the likeness of God. Let's get a little more serious. How about, how about the Mexican immigrant speaking Spanish in line behind you or the Muslim lady sitting next to you on the plane with her hair covered by a hijab? How about the addict who just checked into rehab for the third time? I'm sure there's some jokes you'd like to tell at their expense, some opinions you'd like to share. Made in the likeness of God. One more. How about that woke politician or that MAGA politician that you believe is the greatest danger our country has ever faced, they are made in the likeness of God. Now, we may disagree strongly with some of these people. We, we may truly think they're wrong and harmful. They may be golems, and we may be Frodo. They may need to hear hard words, but even those hard words, James is saying, should have a heart that seeks life for them, not death, not a curse, since all these people are made in God's image, James is telling us that you cannot, it's impossible, it's illogical, you cannot bless God and also curse them because to curse them is to ultimately curse the God in whose image they're made. About a month ago, Queen Elizabeth of England passed away at 96 years old. I'm sure that's not news to anybody. If it is, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. Um, That means, of course, that her oldest son, Charles III, is now the new monarch of England, and he's actually going to be officially crowned King Charles III next June. So just imagine next June, 
that you're sitting in front of the TV to watch that coronation ceremony. And as you're watching, you spot a person in the crowd there at the coronation ceremony. And you just can't take your eyes off of them because they're just so enthusiastic, right? They're just so happy to be there, smiling from ear to ear. You can see them just belting out the chorus of God save the king. And then you see them weeping when they actually put that crown on the king's head. Now, what would you think about that person? You would think that person really loves their king. All right. So next day, you're scrolling through your news feed, and you see a video, and you click on it, and apparently a person was arrested after the ceremony for tearing down the newly commissioned portrait of the king and stomping all over it. And then, and then they show the vandal's mugshot, and to your astonishment, it's the same person. How do you, how do you make sense of that? Someone who, someone who seemed to love the king so much... How would they want to deface and destroy a portrait made in his honor? To vandalize the portrait is to vandalize the honor and the glory of the king himself. And what James is telling us is that I am that vandal and you are that vandal. Every time we use our tongue to insult or humiliate or berate or gossip about, lie about, grumble about a fellow human, we are defacing and destroying a portrait of the God whose praises we sang together on Sunday. I thought I'd just let that sit for a minute. There is a weightiness, there is a seriousness to that truth that should make us pause before we ever open our mouths to speak to or about another human being. And C.S. Lewis actually described this much better than I ever could. I just want to quote him here. Listen to what he says. He says, it is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations, and it is in light of these overwhelming possibilities It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat, but it is immortal's whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And that's a sobering thought. And yet, and yet, even though James has now warned us so strongly of the destructive and hellish power of an untamed tongue, and even though he's told us about the amazing benefit of taming the tongue, it's not enough. James tells us right here in verses 7 through 8, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. No human being can tame the tongue. So the question is, where do we find hope? And of course, that's going to bring us to our final big idea today, which is hope for taming the tongue. In verses 11 through 12, last two verses of this passage, James just continues his train of thought on how illogical it is to use the same tongue to bless God and curse people. Here's what he says. 
He's going to continue his thought here. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now, at face value, this is obviously just one more indictment against the kind of doublespeak that we've been talking about. But there's also in these two verses a glimmer of hope. So, so I just want you to think about James' analogies here. The whole point he's trying to make is that whatever comes out of an underground spring at its mouth or whatever fruit hangs on a tree at the end of its branches is evidence of what that thing is at its core, at its source, at its roots. In other words, you don't find fresh and salt water coming out of the same hole in the ground because the spring at its source can only produce one or the other. So if you find yourself walking through the woods and you see a pool of water bubbling up from the ground, number one, call somebody. There's a busted pipe. All right, but let's just pretend it's not. All right, we, we don't live here. We live in a nice forest out in the country somewhere. And you find this pool and it's bubbling up, right? And it's bitter. Second thing, don't taste a pool of water in the forest, but just go with my analogy for a second. Pool of water, it's bubbling out of the ground, right? It will do you no good if you taste it and it's bitter. It will do you no good to purify the pool, right? You would need to purify the underground spring, the actual source. And then if you had a tree that was growing figs and you didn't want figs, it wouldn't help you any to pluck off all the figs, hoping olives will grow in its place. That's not how that works. You've got to uproot the old tree plant a new one. Here's the point that James is making. The real problem is not surface level. The real problem goes down deeper to the source. The untamed tongue is a world of unrighteousness. It's set on fire by hell, but the words that come out of our mouths are not the root issue. It's the source from which those words originate in the first place, what the Bible, of course, calls our hearts, the, the center of who we are, our will, our mind, our emotional center. And, and James, when he talks about this, is really just borrowing this teaching from Jesus himself. I'm, I'm going to read it to you here in Matthew 12, 33 and 34. Um, you've heard this quoted at Severn many times. You really can't talk about using your words without getting to this passage. Here's what Jesus said. Notice how similar it is to what James said. Jesus said, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If we want to tame our tongues, we must first heal our hearts. And that's why James was not exaggerating when he said that no human being can tame the tongue because no human being can heal their own heart. We actually need brand new hearts. We need heart transplants, and that can only come from outside of ourselves. The good news, and here's the hope that I've been promising you, the good news is that this, exactly, this is exactly what God does for those who believe in Jesus. James actually described it back in chapter 1, verse 18. Pastor Ryan talked about this a few weeks ago. Um, but I don't think we can resolve the tension in chapter 3 unless we just return to this for a minute. So we're going to back up to chapter 1, verse 18, and James is going to describe this process of, of being given a new heart. Here's what he says. He says, of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth. Literally, that means he gave us birth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 
this new birth that James is talking about is just another way of talking about being given a new heart. The, the New Testament uses those pictures interchangeably. This is what's happened to everyone who's believed in Jesus. We're reborn. We're made into new creations with new hearts. If we want to use James's word picture, we're now brand new trees that will produce brand new fruit to the glory of God. Awesome. But here's the problem. The people to whom James is writing are already Christians. In verse 18, he's obviously describing something that's already happened to these people. These people already have new hearts, and yet he spends 12 verses in chapter 3 encouraging them to stop stumbling with their tongues. It's obviously something they're still struggling with. So what gives? I just told you that the key to taming your tongue is a new heart, but it ain't obviously working for these people. So let's go back to verse 18. Back to verse 18 for a second. Let's see what the issue here is. So, so this new birth that we've been given by God, this creating of a new heart in us, James says, was accomplished by, the phrase he uses is by the word of truth. That's how he accomplished this new heart. And that, that word of truth has been planted inside of us, but it now needs to grow and work its way into all the other areas of our lives. And that's why James continues his thought here, three verses later, chapter 1, verse 21, Listen to what he says about this word that caused us to be born again. He said, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And listen to this part. And receive with meekness or humility the implanted word, which is able also to save your souls. The word has already been planted. These people already have new hearts. But if we want this new heart to pump life through our bodies so we can grow and mature, so we can tame our tongues, then we must, James is saying, we must continually, constantly, and consciously return to, be reminded of, and receive this implanted word with humility, recognizing our need and our weakness. So all of that begs the question, what is this word of truth, this word that's been implanted in us, this word that we need to receive, what is it? If you keep reading in chapter 1, a few verses later, James talks about not just hearing this word, but doing this word. There was a whole sermon on this three weeks ago. So it, it's safe to assume that the word of truth includes things that you do, what we would call commandments from God, what James will later refer to as God's law. And that's true. In Psalm 119.11, most of you probably know this verse, you probably memorized it, the psalmist declares that he had hidden God's word, which for him was God's law. He had hidden God's law in his heart that he might not sin against him. So, if, if you want to avoid sinning, if you want to avoid stumbling in what you say, 100% you need to humbly receive and remind yourselves of God's law and commands. And that's really kind of what James is doing in chapter 3. He's reminding these believers of God's law about what it says about our tongue. But this implanted word of truth has to be more than just law and commands. And here's how I know that's true. Because go back to chapter 1, verse 18. James tells us that this implanted word of truth is the thing by God's Spirit that actually caused our new birth in Christ, actually gave us new hearts. But we know that the law and commands alone were never able to do that. That's why the prophets of the Old Testament talked about and looked forward to the day when God was going to do something new. He was going to do something where the law could be written on our hearts. It's not that the law and commands are bad or unnecessary. It's just that they're not enough. 
You can memorize Scripture all day about what you should and shouldn't do, but that alone will not help you to tame our tongue. That, that law is just the outer shell of this seed, the kernel of the seed, the true core and life of this seed is not the law, but the gospel. And that means if we, if we want to tame our tongues, if, if we want to stop ourselves from cursing other people made in God's image, then we need to humbly receive not just God's commands, but the gospel. The gospel which says that we are the ones who deserve the curse of destruction and death, but God in His grace and in His love has blessed us instead with new and eternal life. And it's not because He ignored the curse, but because He took that curse and placed it on His own Son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to go ahead and have the worship team come up. You know, this is my, um, I told the 9 a.m., this is my, I think, fourth time preaching at Severn. And um, I'm realizing that you probably realize I have no new tricks in the bag. Like, this is, this is how I do it every time. And you guys know how I'm about to end this sermon, right? And I was, I was texting with Pastor Ryan, I think, just a, a couple days ago, and I was saying, like, maybe I'm just getting repetitive at this point. But, but I was thinking about it last night and just reminding myself, you know, Scripture says that Jesus Christ, in Him, all things hold together. Jesus himself said that you read the law and the prophets and you think you found life, but they all speak of me. He's the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. In other words, what that all means is that Jesus Christ is the resolution to every plot twist in our lives. He, he is the crescendoing chorus that every verse of our lives is, is trying to build into. Jesus Christ is the destination that all the signs are pointing to. And so I really, I really just don't know any other way than taking a passage of Scripture and just getting us to Jesus. So let's think about Jesus for a minute. Jesus Christ was the only man in history who had the right and the authority and the perfect sinless judgment to curse other humans because he was the only human who ever lived who was also God. But instead of using his tongue to curse those who deserved it, he came here and used his tongue to bless them. Think about that. For three years, he traveled around the countryside of Israel into the cities, speaking with his tongue the good news of salvation to, to people like hypocritical religious leaders, prostitutes, tax collectors, hot-headed fishermen, and more. He used his tongue to speak words of healing to people that didn't turn back and thank him words of freedom to people possessed with demons. And then, and then in his final hours, while being mocked and beaten and slandered, he didn't lash out with insults. We're told that he was silent like a sheep being led to the slaughter. And then finally, as he was drawing his last breaths on a cross made for torture, Scripture tells us that he could have used his tongue to call down an army of angels to smite those who were gloating over him. Instead, he used his tongue to plead for their forgiveness. Jesus Christ, the perfect image of God, tamed his tongue and submitted to the curse of an unjust death so that we could be remade into the image of God we were always meant to be. That is the gospel word that has been implanted in all of us who believe. And it's that word, that word above all else, that we must humbly receive, knowing our weakness, knowing our need, day after day, in order to become mature men and women of God who tame our tongues to use them as instruments not of cursing, but of blessing 
to all people. And it all boils down to this one question, have you received that word? And then, if you have, are you still receiving it every single day? We live in a world where we receive a lot of words. Are you receiving the word of truth? We receive a lot of news. That's why they call it a news feed. It just feeds you and feeds you and feeds you until you're sick. Are you receiving the good news every single day? Because it's the only way, the only way we will ever tame our tongues. Let me go ahead and pray with you. Heavenly Father, having studied this passage now for a little while, preparing to to bring it to my brothers and sisters in Christ, I know the first thing, the first response to your word like this is confession and repentance. Um, I'm, I'm just a messenger with the privilege and the burden of having to share such a, such a hard word in one sense. So the first thing I would do is come to you individually, personally, and just confess that, that more often than I would like to think, I have used my tongue to curse and destroy people made in your image, and by doing so, I have dishonored and defaced your glory and your honor. And for that, I am sorry. And for that, I I seek your forgiveness that I know has been purchased for me through the blood of Jesus. I'm so glad that in the middle of this passage, it's so hard, James had the wherewithal, that you inspired him to have the wherewithal to say, we all stumble in many ways. James included himself in that, and that gives me so much hope and encouragement. You're a God who knows that we're just dust. You know that we stumble. That's why you had to provide us with a Savior. But we don't want to stay here. You didn't save us and give us new hearts to stay in that condition. You saved us. You gave us new hearts to be remade into your image. So I I would ask for myself and all my brothers and sisters in this room that by your Spirit, you would remind us to daily come back to the Word of the Gospel, to, to the Bible, to Scripture, to remind ourselves that we deserve the curse, but you gave us blessing. How could we do anything else to other people? We deserved it, but we got blessing. Help us now to use our tongue to give blessing to people that we think deserve a curse. Help us to remember that we're on the same level as them. We're all sinners in need of your grace. God, help us to go from this place being a blessing to a world that is hurting so that we can show them the love of Jesus. And it's in his name that I ask all these things. Amen.